Hello, and welcome to the Friday edition of the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Sarars. Busy, busy sports night, Thursday night. There's some hockey, some NBA, one of the Gatorade duels in NASCAR. A little bit of baseball news. The Mets might be in the market for Chris Bryant, according to Andy Martino of SNY, who I'm highly skeptical of. They might have called the A's about Mad Chapman. I don't know how much I believe that. Hockey is dealing with a pretty bad COVID outbreak where four teams at the moment are currently shut down of all activities. There's a lot going on. I am going to take, this is what they call in the movie business, one for me. This is going to be me talking about NASCAR for a little bit because Daytona 500 weekend is a big deal. Even when I was not a NASCAR guy like I am now because of the pandemic, which kind of forced me into watching it because it was the only sport running for a while in the U.S., I always watched the Daytona 500. I mean, it's the, the biggest race on the NASCAR calendar. It's always the week after the Super Bowl. It's always very exciting. The style of racing lends itself very well to the casual viewer because of how the track runs, that kind of thing. So this is going to be a fun one. It won't be that long, again, like the Thursday episode. Try and keep it in the ballpark between 30 and 40 minutes. Just some stuff I wanted to talk about in the NASCAR universe. But before we get to the cars going Zoom, got to remind everyone to please help grow the show any way you can. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe on the episode page. Scroll all the way down to the bottom where there are the five stars and reviews. Click five stars. Write out a review, please would mean a lot. If you are on Spotify, please follow. If you are using SoundCloud, please follow. If you are on Google Play, Audio Boom, Stitcher, any of those platforms, please follow along and help grow the show. Having a lot of fun doing this. Every now and then I do got to take a day just to kind of regroup, come together with an episode topic because I don't want to just talk out of my ass for 40 minutes like, you know, every national talk show host on the country on the planet really not even in the country on the whole planet i'm sure and the soccer crazy markets wherever they are in the world whether you're talking about south america europe asia wherever there are people calling into that local area's equivalent of wfan and trying to run someone out of town for one bad performance so with that i'm gonna set it up here nascar had a pretty interesting year last year uh pandemic really put it in the spotlight for a while because they were away from racing for about four and a half, five weeks, like all the other sports, about when Rudy Gobert tested positive and they sent the Jazz and Thunder home, and then the next day, the NHL suspended play, they sent the players home from MLB spring training, all that. In that window, they were at the track for, I believe it was the race in Vegas, and they sent everyone home, they came back six weeks later. They ran a race on a weeknight, and then again that following weekend, and they got their season rolling after about a six-week hiatus. It was a very eventful season. There was a lot to catch myself back up on. I remember playing the NASCAR game a lot as a kid. I was I enjoyed watching NASCAR here and there when it was still on ESPN every week, and now it's on NBC and Fox, but... I remembered the basics, I remembered some of the names, I remembered Denny Hamlin, I remembered Kevin Harvick, Jimmy Johnson, found out Jeff Gordon was a broadcaster, that uh, he had retired from racing, 
ditto for Dale Earnhardt Jr. that he had retired. He was done with racing. Uh, Tony Stewart uh, owns a NASCAR team now. Uh, he was always in the mix for a championship back when I was a kid. The Bush brothers are still floating around. There's Bubba Wallace, the only full-time African-American driver. There were some younger guys who had solid track records up to that point in their career. Guys like Chase Elliott, guys like Ryan Blaney, who most experts in the sport consider to be the next crop of guys who eventually take that. There's a handful of teams that field multiple cars. There's Hendrick Motorsports, there's Joe Gibbs, there's Stuart Haas. There's a number of teams. The teams work together, but... They are not married to how much they protect each other. They do occasionally wreck each other because they are, after all, competing for spots. Even though they have common manufacturer, spot owner, that kind of thing. At the end of the day, they are still racing against each other. So, that's your little table setter. I will see you guys in one second. We'll talk a little, a little NASCAR. Denny Hamlin. Hamlin off turn number four. No, side-by-side -side battles have finished this time. Denny Hamlin wins his second Daytona 500 and wins it for Coach Gibbs in Toyota. And with that, we'll get right on into it. Last year, Chase Elliott won his way into a Cup Series championship. Explaining how the playoffs work in NASCAR is pretty complicated, but... If you win the race, you advance automatically to the next round. There are four rounds. There are 16 guys who make the playoffs. Number of races in each round. Then once you get to the final four and five, the final eight and the final four, it narrows down to only one race each. And Elliott won the round of eight, the last race in the round of eight at the Charlotte Roval. And then he won the championship race at Phoenix after starting from the, the back. And it was a very interesting way to end the season. And now, looking forward, we have not a ton of parity in the NASCAR world. On a typical race week, you have somewhere in the ballpark of 35 to 42 cars on track that qualify for a race every single week. There's about 8 to 10 drivers capable of winning the championship every single year between their talent and the quality of the car they drive. That is an important factor in the NASCAR world. What team you drive for and what car you have matters. Certain manufacturers have done a better job keeping up with the times. It was notable last year that at the first half of the season between Daytona and the pause because of COVID that Chevrolet had a nice run but after they came back, the Chevrolets had a really hard time, and it was a lot of Toyotas and Fords winning races. So, manufacturer matters. Um, Storyline-wise, there's a lot to talk about. We can talk about Bubba Wallace and 2311 Racing, the uh, venture between Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin, where they are fielding a car, the 23 car. Of course, they got Michael Jordan's number. Bubba Wallace is driving it, and he qualified fourth for the Daytona 500. Bubba Wallace is... A quality driver, he had a nice run in some of the developmental stages before you get to the Cup Series, there's the Xfinity Series, the Truck Series. Bubba did a really solid job in the Truck Series and in some Xfinity run, but mostly in trucks he had a nice run. The last several years he had driven the number 43 for Richard Petty Racing. Richard Petty Racing has not put together a competitive team in a long time. It's just changing of the times, they don't have the resources of a Hendrick Motorsports, of a Stuart Haas Racing, 
of a, even a Chip Ganassi racing. Chip Ganassi fields multiple cars. Richard Petty only fields one. And Bubba had a couple top 20s. He's had a few career top 10s. Uh, he's going to do better in this equipment. There's not a lot of doubt in my mind. They got the one car, the... The car Bubba's going to be driving is from the Gibbs catalog because they are a satellite team of the Gibbs team, and the Toyotas have run very well in this era of NASCAR since, like, post-2017 when they switched to this rule setup. The Toyotas have done pretty well in this era, and Bubba's going to do a lot better than he was at Richard Petty Racing just based on his the equipment. The equipment matters. The equipment absolutely makes a difference, and you can see it's why only the guys from the big teams are consistently winning five to ten races every year. I mean, Harvick won nine races last year in a Ford. Denny Hamlin won six or seven in a Toyota. There's a reason those guys run so well. It just flat out, there is. Going off of the bubble point, one of the interesting things that's happened over the last several years is the sport is getting younger and younger consistently. There are guys who are racing at a pretty high level in their early 20s. Guys like Chase Elliott, guys like Ryan Blaney, who are only 25, 26 years old. And you can have a very long prime in motor racing. You can race until your mid-40s, early 50s, and still be pretty competitive every single week. And it makes for compelling theater where you have these guys. A lot of these guys are second-generation guys. Ryan Blaney's dad was a NASCAR guy. So was Chase Elliott's dad. That is one of the things that's very common in NASCAR is second, third, even fourth generation guys who they're around cars their entire life, so they take to it naturally from a very young age. When their parents are involved, they're able to give them more opportunities, and you start them off at an earlier pace where you start at kart racing, then you go to spring cups, you go to dirt racing, then you go to modifieds, then you get to ARCA, and then you start on the NASCAR developmental circuit. It is a very generational um nepotistic field i will say to be fair it's not fair that a lot of these guys have connections from their parents and that kind of thing but their talent is undeniable anyone who tells you that they just go and left for four hours three hours they don't watch the races um if you are a baseball fan you will enjoy the strategy that goes into a NASCAR race because of all the moving parts like there are in a baseball game where you're constantly having to think ahead to what the people around you are going to do. You have to do all of this while you're driving 170 miles an hour. Very early on in this show's life cycle, in the Upper Bowl's life cycle, I had DeAndre Graves, a Twitter mutual friend of mine who works for NASCAR in their social media department, and we talked a lot about it. And he described it as being a chess match at 200 miles an hour because you constantly have to be thinking about what the people around you are doing. From a driving standpoint, like where you are on the track, because some lines on the track are just faster than others. Some tracks you got to take a higher line, meaning closer to the outside wall, like where the grandstand would be. Some tracks you got to take an inside line where you got to go closer to where the infield of the track is just because that's the fastest part of the racetrack. There's no rhyme or reason some areas just they have more grip it's cooler it's warmer there are a lot of factors that go into picking a line and what works for your car and then as the race goes on your car changes your tires wear your fuel you deplete yourself of fuel you have to plan okay 
the guys ahead of me who I'm in competition with who have a good chance of winning this race, when are they going to stop? Am I going to stop when they stop? Or am I going to take a gamble and try and wait longer than they do? Am I going to go before they do so I can get back out on the track quicker and try and get around them? There's a lot of moving parts, and I really do enjoy the strategy of trying to put together a winning game plan for a race, because most races you're going to have to pit stop four, three times at minimum. If there's a lot of yellow flags, caution flags that slow down the race because of debris, an accident, what have you, you can have more stops, but stops are a big part of the strategy. And then, you know, on the longer tracks with the bigger straightaways, you got to try and talk to other people around you on the track. You got to talk to your spotter who's relaying information to you based on where you are on the track. Your spotter will tell you car left, car right, guy behind you. They're your eyes away from you. So you can be aware of everyone around you and you can link up, you can form alliances, that kind of thing where if you're coming down a long straightaway, tell your spotter, there's a guy behind you, tell your spotter, tell his spotter, hey, give me a push, we can take a run here, that kind of thing. All of that goes into the plan. Have to have a plan. Going off of that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Daytona 500 as a race, as a cultural institution, that kind of thing. It is easily one of the most exciting races of the year because of the style of racing. I mentioned that in the introduction, but the longer tracks, meaning physically each lap is longer because it's a longer track on each lap. You have long straightaways, so you're able to build up speed. You're on in pretty sharp embankments, 35, 40 degree angles where you're driving 195, 200 miles an hour with cars to your left, to your right, behind you and in front of you. And yes, that is a big part of NASCAR's culture. The wrecks, the flashy, the explosiveness, the craziness. That is part of the culture. The avoiding the crazy wreck because people are driving aggressively is steeped deeply in NASCAR culture. I mean, it is common parlance to be referred to at every single race that's held at Daytona International Speedway and Talladega Super Speedway to avoid the big one, meaning the crazy wreck that takes out eight or ten cars in the field, and that's it for your day. If you're in that wreck, most of the time you're not going to finish the race because your car is so badly damaged. That is a part of NASCAR's culture. It always will be because of the types of people that are in motor racing. There's a certain individualist, ruggedness, survivalist streak within them, within the sport. It's part of the reason that there's that machismo, masculine streak of guys who drive like lunatics to get around people to try and win races because winning is all that matters. You know, the Ricky Bobby shit, the you ain't first, you're last. Uh, and going off of that, it is the 20th anniversary, the 20th Daytona 500 since Dale Earnhardt Sr. died on the last lap of the Daytona 500 what seems like forever ago back in 2001 and I talked about it a little bit on yesterday's show when I was teasing today's episode but I did not really have an understanding of how big a deal Dale Earnhardt Sr. was in the world of NASCAR until now when like I have the appropriate cultural references I can understand like this would be the equivalent of like you know if Michael Jordan tore his Achilles but he also like you know died during a basketball game because 
in motor racing, people don't like, you know, just tear an ACL and their season is over. Like it's been 20 years since someone has died in a high in the highest level of NASCAR, the Cup Series. That would Dale Earnhardt's passing forced the sport to modernize in a lot of way, but people still die in Formula One and Formula Two and other forms of auto racing. It is inherently dangerous to drive a car extremely fast around other cars on a closed track. Just the very nature of the sport is dangerous, and you are going to see a lot, a lot of memorial stuff this weekend, both on ESPN, on Fox, on pre-race stuff on Sunday, if you put Fox's pregame on. I know ESPN is publishing an E60 at noon on Sunday, which I will be certainly watching about seniors' accident, the steps NASCAR took after he died to make it safer for everyone. I've read a number of articles this week because last year, Daytona 500, last lap of the race, Ryan Newman, who's been in NASCAR a very long time, if you used to play the old NASCAR Sprint for the Cup games on, like, the PS2 and the GameCube, Ryan Newman was the guy you started the race against in the Dodge Viper, and I think it was New York, and if you beat him in the race, you started the career mode. That Ryan Newman, he's been in NASCAR a very, very long time. He was coming down the straightaway. He had Ryan Blaney on his bumper. And Blaney nudged him at a not square angle. When you're trying to give someone a bump draft, you got to push them straight ahead. If you don't cleanly push them straight ahead, you tap like the a little bit too far to the left or a little bit too far to the right on the rear of that car, you will spin them out. And that's what happened. Blaney obviously didn't mean to spin him, but he spun Newman. Newman went into the wall, got airborne, rolled a number of times, and got hit again by another car that was coming down the straightaway. And Newman had said it himself a number of times in the last year since then. If the safety modifications to the cars that came after Dale Earnhardt's wreck in 2001 had not been in NASCAR. Newman is pretty confident he would have died in that accident because Dale Sr. got killed because his car got crushed and it cracked him. It hit him square in the head. His helmet was not a full helmet. Like, if you're familiar with what a motorcycle helmet looks like, that is what's mandated now in NASCAR and all forms of high-level motor racing. You have to wear a closed helmet. That way, if there is an accident, your car does not crush you, your head. And that's what killed Dale Earnhardt. Was he, his head got whipped so far back, and then his car crushed his head once his head came back forward. It is not, not that long ago. And... Like I said before, people still die in motor racing, not with great frequency, but with enough frequency that the culture of racing has changed, especially, especially, especially because it was Dale Earnhardt who died in 2001. Uh, prior to that, a lot of drivers had said, I'm not doing that. that that's uncomfortable. I don't want to wear a harness that keeps me locked into the seat. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to be thinking about that and not thinking about driving. I mean... Dale Earnhardt died in February of 2001, and NASCAR made what's called, it's called a hands device. That's what keeps you locked into your seat so you don't move. 
if you're familiar with how a baby seat in a car works, where it's got the five-point harness where it comes from underneath their legs and over your arms to keep the baby locked in place, it's the same general principle with a NASCAR seatbelt system. It comes underneath, it's five-pointed, so you got two that come from the legs, one that comes over the top of your head, and then two that come from the sides over your arms, and it locks all into one middle thing in the middle, and that's going to keep you in place, and the hands device comes down on your neck. If you're familiar with what a neck roll looks like in football, it's similar to that. That makes sure that your neck does not whiplash and you don't crack your head on your steering wheel, which is also that's something that can happen prior to the invention of the hands device, which keeps you locked in place. These kind of things inside the car were important, but also NASCAR was forced to change the barriers they have on the track. Uh, if you're familiar with what a typical racetrack looks like, you've got the solid white wall all the way around, and that used to be a solid uh, object that if you crashed into it, there was no give in the wall. Since that accident, NASCAR has installed a steel barrier with a shock-absorbing agent between that and the outer, harder wall. So the absorbent agent absorbs a lot of the impact, you are not hitting the wall as hard, and it is helping to distribute the energy of that impact. The way you want to think about this, if you are watching as a casual observer, the more a car rolls, it moves, the better, because that means the energy is being dispersed throughout the car. The bad wrecks are the ones where the car hits the wall and stops, because that means the car absorbed all of the impact, and that's what happened to Dale Earnhardt. Car impacted the wall, and it came to a rest, and then he got hit again by a car behind him in the race, and that is probably what killed him. I watched the accident once in my life, by accident, when I was like 13 or 14. I've refused to watch it ever since. I cannot bring myself to do it. I know watching the documentary about it on Sunday is going to be hard. I mean, I saw the trailer yesterday on Twitter for it. ESPN tweeted it out, and I, I got choked up because you think about just how insane it is that an icon of a sport died playing the sport. It is insane to think about. And as I'm sitting here recording this, the uh, Gatorade Duel is in a rain delay right now. And yes, I still call it the Gatorade Duel, even though Gatorade's not the sponsor of it anymore, because that's what I remember it as as a kid. And it's in a rain delay right now, because, you know, Florida, this time of year, rain a lot. And Fox has a bunch of old stuff they're showing just to fill time. And they're showing one of... They're showing clips from old races, and one of the things they showed was... Newman's wreck, and I still remember where I was when it happened. I was in Disney World, I was following along on my phone, I was in the Magic Kingdom, I was scrolling along, so I went to overtime, I said, alright, I'll pull it up on my phone, I'll livestream the last two laps of overtime on my phone just to see what happens, and I remember when Fox started acting weird and they were being very quiet and then when mike joy and jeff gordon are saying we don't want to speculate what happened you, you immediately 
you you think the worst happens whenever you are in any kind of environment like that and they don't immediately say oh it's okay it's okay we know it was a bad wreck but ryan's on the radio he let his spotter know he was okay and he didn't let him his spotter know he was okay because he got knocked out cold there was a feature written on fox's website this past week fox sports's website about newman's accident his recovery and he still says the last thing ryan newman says the last thing he remembers from that day was eating lunch with his parents at like 11 o'clock that morning something like that and he does not remember any of the next day and a half but he said that he spent a lot of time during his rehab process of getting back up to race speed just watching the race and trying to reconstruct what happened because it's just a hole in his memory. It's just not there. And it's a traumatic event and it's just not three days of his life are gone. And he still does not remember what happened now, even a year later. And it's a reminder why, yes, the cars have never been safer. Yes. The tracks have never been safer. Yes. The professionals that are there on the scene to respond to any incident have never been better at their jobs, but it's more important than ever as we keep progressing in the world of motorsports to try and make it safer. No more on-track fatalities. No more. It is an inherently dangerous thing. I know I said it before. I will say it again. Driving cars extremely fast in close proximity to other cars on closed circuits, going around turns, using each other to draft. It is dangerous. There... There is no way to do that safely. You can drive non-aggressively. You can do your best to not hit other people, but you can just be driving along in a large pack of cars, and you're doing the right thing. Everyone around you is doing the right thing, but a couple car lengths in front, someone's a little too aggressive. They tap someone when they don't mean to. They spin out, and that's it. 10, 12 cars. The day's over. That's it. Dangerous. It makes for the most cruel kind of entertainment is the word I'll use to describe it. Uh, it's not quite as brutal as football on a game-to-game, race-to-race basis, but the lows, man. That feeling of just going numb and thinking, oh my god, did that guy just die on TV in front of me, is not something that's understandable, because you shouldn't have to understand what that is because that shouldn't happen now now that i've gotten everyone nice and depressed in the middle of their friday i will talk a little bit about this upcoming season some things i'd like to see some things i expect nascar did change their schedule up they added a few new tracks they are running the formula one road course in austin which is going to be interesting to see with stock cars because there are some steep inclines and declines the braking zones are a little bit more pronounced because it is designed for Formula One cars, for Indy cars, slightly different than what NASCAR is, which are stock cars, which are a little bit different. The, there isn't as much downforce. There's more horsepower, so the braking is a little bit different. I know that is um, complicated. Uh, downforce is the force that keeps the car on the ground because it's going so fast, the way it's designed. The way the air flows around it keeps it going, and the horsepower is what drives it. Like I said, I 
highly recommend you going back and listening to the episode I did with DeAndre DeAndre Graves way back in the fall, right after NASCAR season had wrapped up, after Chase Elliott had won. He did a really nice job of explaining how downforce and horsepower work in relation to running, because that's an easy way to understand, because everyone has run before, not everyone has driven a car 200 miles an hour. Very, very compelling television is what I will describe it as. So, this season, I'm very excited to see what Bubba can do in some quality equipment, because he's grown on me. Investing myself in another sport was not something I expected to do when 2020 started, but, you know, the pandemic forced us into interesting things where we kind of had to find ways to amuse ourselves. I got into NASCAR and Formula One. A lot of people watch The Last Dance. All those kind of things where collectives make for entertainment. Uh, going in, I didn't really have any favorites going into last season, and now there's like, yeah, I, I will defend Bubba Wallace on Twitter whenever I see people slandering him. Ditto Chase Elliott, ditto Ryan Blaney. Then there's guys like Harvick who have been around forever. There's guys like Denny Hamlin who are still chasing a championship even though they've got this long decorated resume. There are compelling characters in this soap opera, in this traveling circus that goes town to town for 30 plus weeks a year. And I want to see Bubba get his first win. I want to see... What happens at Hendrick now that they've got a steady stable of four guys? The great Jimmy Johnson retired at the end of last year. Alex Bowman, who drove the 88 car, is now driving Jimmy Johnson's 48. William Byron is driving Jeff Gordon's old 24. Chase Elliott drives the 9 car, which was the number his dad drove back in the day. And Hendrick also has the 5 car back in the fold. They brought Kyle Larson out of uh, his... Uh, Use of a racial slur suspension back into the fold. Uh, I don't know how it's going to go for Larson. He spent a lot of last year doing the social media rounds, trying to convince everyone that he had seen the error of his ways and that he was sorry and that he wanted another chance. And Hendrick said, you might be able to win us some races, so we're going to bring you in. And even though, you know, using racial slurs is bad, but you might be able to win us races, so we'll bring you in. Uh, I don't want to get too soapboxy, but yeah, uh, he should have had to sit out more than just half a season for using a racial slur on a live stream. Uh, yeah, not really buying the whole remorse shtick that he's trying to peddle right now. However, Hendrick has a stable of young guys. All four of their drivers are younger than 30. Then you talk about Stuart Haas coming off of last year where... Kevin Harvick probably was the favorite to win the whole thing going into the playoffs and then had a really rough run of things going into the round of eight. Didn't even make the final four. You've got the guys who were always around, like Joey Logano, like Kyle Busch, Brad Keselowski. There's a nice stable of guys who are pretty young. It will make for an entertaining season, I think. I think the novelty things they added some road courses they are doing a dirt race for the first time in a number of years on the cup series level at bristol in a couple weeks yes you heard me they are poor they brought in a bunch of dirt on dump trucks to pour over the track to turn it into a dirt race in stock cars it is probably going to be 
a total shit show because, you know, dirt constantly changes throughout the course of a race, unlike pavement. Pavement changes, but dirt changes more dynamically because every time people drive over it, it's going to shift a little bit, and it's going to be interesting to see who can get runs on what part of the track, especially in these type of cars because, you know, stock cars aren't meant to drive on dirt. I'm assuming there will be different tires for that week, but it will make for an interesting season is what I am expecting. This is like the polar opposite of Formula One, where it's just a matter of by what race in the season Lewis Hamilton's going to win the Drivers' Championship and what race in the season Mercedes is going to win the Constructors' Championship. There's a number of drivers who can win. There's a number of teams who could field a competitive team enough to win. Uh, I don't think Chase Elliott will go back-to-back. I just, going back-to-back is hard. The way the rules are set up now, the way the playoffs are, where you got to be able to be consistently good for a number of weeks, and it adds to the variance, where you could have as good a regular season as Kevin Harvick did. I mean, in a 30-something race season, Harvick won nine races. You can have that great of a race, but you have two bad weeks. You don't even make the Final Four. You don't even get a chance to race for the championship. And yes, it devalues the regular season, which is a legitimate complaint that the regular season races matter less. It's the same argument as if you expand the number of teams in the college football playoff. The regular season used to matter a lot in NASCAR because you could build up a substantial lead and then the playoffs wouldn't matter as much. You could have things wrapped up well before the last race of the season. Yes, the way NASCAR has it set up now is artificially creating competition, but at the same time, that's better than your season being over and still having five races left in the playoffs. That's where I fall on that argument. I understand the other side of it, but it allowed Chase Elliott to come out of not nowhere, but you know... He wasn't in good shape in the round of eight, but he won the last race in that to get in and then won the championship. And it was awesome to see. I mean, got got me invested. It's fun to see things like that where someone makes a run. It's the same effect as March Madness where, you know, a 12 seed beats a five and then goes on the next week and beats a three. A 12 getting to the elite eight is awesome. That's the whole point of March Madness is that craziness, that randomness. We'll say Daytona is a great race if you want to just dip your toe in the water of NASCAR, of a, just to try and understand it a little bit, get a sense of what NASCAR is about. Daytona will be good television because of the style of racing. The bump drafting is crazy. The speeds that they get up to. You can find a driver who interests you, I promise you. These are very interesting people, car car guys are very funny they will just kind of be like well yeah i was doing this and this and going straight and uh i got tapped and i went around went into the wall sucks but you know i'll be out there next week i'll see him and then we'll take care of it and then you get to see follow along you get to see how teams adjust over the course of the season how drivers adjust over the course of the season what teams are able to put together speed what teams are able to put together durable cars where they don't have mechanical failures There are just so many moving parts. It makes for amazing, amazing television. And, and, the strategy is what is compelling to me as a viewer. Once you get past the surface level, yeah, they are just kind of doing the same thing for three hours. And you start to think about all of the decisions that go into those three hours. You get a very, very entertaining sport. In the same way you do with baseball, where... Guy doesn't have his stuff, but he's still finessing, off-speed, off-speed, high fastball, 
one and two. What do we do here? Let's go waste pitch so we don't get beat one and two. All right, two and two. It's that same kind of thing. Well, we're a little bit loose. Let's try and loosen the car. Let's try and tighten the car. Let's go for tires here. Let's only do two tires instead of four. There's so, so much to think about that goes into putting a race together, especially a successful race. It's not just what you do. It's what the cars around you do. It's what the people you're in direct competition with do. That's about 35-ish minutes of NASCAR talk. I won't inundate you with it. I will get you out of here. Uh, I don't think Denny Hamlin pulls off the three-peat. I'm going to go not like a totally ridiculous pick. Give me Ricky Stenhouse Jr. to win the Daytona 500 on Sunday. Enjoy your weekend. Mask up. Be safe. I'll see you guys on Monday. When we talk about the Philadelphia Eagles with my friend Mark. Mark has some things to say about the Eagles. Nick Sirianni, Carson Wentz, Chip Kelly, Andy Reid, Donovan McNabb. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll see you guys then.